things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed. We'll help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show. Hello and welcome to the Early Careers Podcast with myself, Ollie Sidwell. And me, Jack Denton. Uh, today we are concluding series three. End of series three already. Already. Um, yeah, but plenty of conversations in series three, haven't we? Mm, some really interesting ones as well. Yeah, they went to Asia at one point, oh, didn't yeah, we? Did, yeah, part of our global series. Yeah, done plenty of stuff on apprenticeships. I see there's a training provider one to look at. We've done a social media one. And in fact, we might as well do this in our roundup, which we'll release after this. Oh, yeah, excellent. Yeah, so listen out for the, for the roundup, guys, of series three. Yeah, so, so concluding Series 3, we have with us Ben Williams from Sten 10. Um, ben is a business psychologist. Uh, as a bit of a roll call for him. He is chair of the Association of Business Psychology, which has about 1,000 members. He is an associate fellow of the British Psychological Society um, and founder of Sten 10, which, if you don't know, is an assessment design consultancy. Uh, ben, what, what a roll call that was. I've also got a 10 metre swimming badge. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's, I don't have much spare time uh, to take part in hobbies and things, <laughs> but, um, but yes, my day job is at Sten 10, and um, the chair of the Association for Business Psychology is something that I um, have volunteered for because it's a really uh, practically orientated group of business psychology professionals, and I thought, well, it's a nice way of giving back to the uh, career. Maybe you could... Uh, give us a bit more information about sort of how you got to you know where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, Starting with the swimming, probably. <laughs> with the swimming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I got much further than ten, actually. So um, maybe we won't go there. But I, I, I guess I, um, I am a chartered psychologist. I, I studied occupational psychology at university, which really means I'm looking at human behaviour in the workplace rather than any other context, like a clinical context or a forensic context. Mm-hmm. Um, I run a company called Sten 10 that designs, delivers, and trains other people in how to um, do psychological assessment, mm-hmm. essentially. And I'm also chair of the Association for Business Psychology, which is a members organization that focuses on um, practical skills for being a business psychologist. Mm. Lovely. Very interesting. So, Jack, why, why is Ben here to talk us? Well, Ben, is the, so it's the last one of series three, mm-hmm. but the first one of our selection and assessment series. Okay. And uh, we're going to be talking about what works best when it comes to workplace psychological tests. Okay. So what works best when it comes to workplace psychological tests. And this is because we're seeing a rise in so many people using a variety of assessment criteria? Yeah, and, um, you know, when we look at the data from the ISC, there's a whole really uh, wide range of the types of tests people are using, and it'd be good to understand a little bit about um, the the strengths of some of those tests, the weaknesses of some of those tests, and why people might be using them, and, and the combinations they're using them them in. I agree. Nice, lovely. <laughs> ben, go go then. So, so we said we said psycho- psychological tests rather than psychometric tests. What's the difference? Yeah, that's a it's a good place to start. Um, So a psychological test is any test that's aimed to measure any aspect of people's psychology. So it could range from a quiz you might see in a magazine. So what type of, I don't know, car are you? That's that's a psychological (laughs) test. Um, And it still would apply to the more rigorous psychometric assessment used in recruitment. Psychometric tends to refer to those types of tests that um, place a number against people's scores. Um, and they've got what we'd refer to as psychometric properties. Mm-hmm. So things like um, they give replicable results. So if you answer a questionnaire one way today, you'll give a pretty similar answer tomorrow. Um, or uh, And it links to future job performance as proven through a validity study. So yeah. you say, yeah, people who do well on this test tend to do well in the job. Um, and it's also got things like comparison groups. So you know how good a score of 43 is um, so, okay, versus other people. It's It's... Um, at the 90th percentile or whatever it might be. So um, so psychometric tends to refer to a subset of psychological tests that um, have been investigated very thoroughly. Yeah. Um, and it gives it that, that quantitative value that takes all the, I guess, um, bias out yeah. of, of 
assessments. That's right. That's right. And, and I guess a, a partner assessment to those would be behavioural assessments. Mm-hmm. So they, they're the kind of things that you'd experience in an assessment centre, group exercise, role play, presentation. They tend to be less thoroughly tested from a psychometric kind of perspective but of course they're really commonly used and they've been shown to be really good predictors of performance as well so um so they're kind of relatives in that way so you might not realize it so basically any part of the pretty much any part of the selection assessment process is some kind of psychological test and some of those tests you're doing will be psychometric but all of them fit into the umbrella of being uh yeah spot on yeah Yeah. absolutely Okay, so we've got a whole variety of different types of tests that people use. Maybe we could talk through some of the most common yeah. and why people you know, use those particular tests. What might be quite useful is to talk about the types of psychological characteristic people want to assess as part of a selection process and then the tools that can be used to tap into those. Okay. Um, so yes, there are a whole host of tests available. Um, I guess I'd probably split them into Um, what we psychologists call tests of maximum performance. So Mm -hmm. basically, the better you do at them, the the, the more suitable you are for a job. So those would be things like verbal reasoning tests, numerical reasoning tests, um, accuracy tests, um, or things like abstract reasoning and logical thinking tests. So all of those, generally, it's the better you do, the more suited you are to a job. Yeah, Um, you get a score at the back of them. It's easy to compare that's right that's right very good for sifting down large numbers down to a more manageable number to invite in for a face-to-face stage Um, so typically early in the in the assessment process yeah in terms of the bang for your buck um these tests are relatively cheap and if you if you need to get down from a vast number to a small number they've been shown to be really predictive of future performance so yeah they they tend to be used really early on um yeah um, we've got an example of couple of those just to add a bit of context yeah so yeah. if we take um verbal skills so you can test, test those um actually it'd be quite boring because i'd have to read out a paragraph <laughs> of dense text and then ask you so how they typically you've got a little vignette a little scenario oh, that's a lovely word that vignette yeah uh, really great vocabulary by the way ben. Just <laughs> thank you very much the whole podcast so far it's from years of writing these questions i have to expand before I started this, it was like, ugh, ugh. But, um, uh, so can we explain what a vignette is for uh, the podcasters and the listeners? A vignette <laughs> is a, a, a little scenario, a, a, a little extract from working life uh, right. that, um, that shows um, a typical interaction someone may have in the workplace. So that um, it could be, for example, um, a, a scenario where you're, um, it, you've been interacting with someone and maybe there's yeah. a bit of conflict, so you're working as part of a team and you've got conflicting views on how to proceed. Um, okay, so a real-life example. Yeah, a real-life example. Okay. Um, sometimes in verbal reasoning tests, they are more factual, so it might be um, a, a, an extract from a newspaper about how dolphins are less active than they used to be. <laughs> so I don't know where I'm going there with dolphins, but, but, it, but they can be quite bizarre. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think the idea of going bizarre is that people don't rely upon their past knowledge so if you said something like um, right, okay. hence um, the dolphins hence the dolphins yeah. so no one knows anything about dolphins they're a mystery so <laughs> so you can you can pick this scenario and then people have to approach it purely from their verbal reasoning skills rather than relying upon their knowledge of stock price indices or um or, or whatever it might be um, <laughs> if you happen to know those yeah. yes um, um good content i think we all know yeah. know a lot more yes um, yeah. And, but also Jack does know a lot about dolphins so oh does he okay oh, one of my yeah, favourite yeah. animals yeah. yeah oh really yeah yeah uh, yeah. versus like, the porpoise or <laughs> yeah is it bottlenose dolphin you like I just like all the of them all of them really yeah, all, yeah. All any dolphins yeah I like yeah many of the ones that swim <laughs> not just Bob floating yeah. on the set. no that's a bad song um, <laughs> so yeah so, so that's verbal reasoning verbal yeah, reasoning and then and then you're asked um, in verbal reasoning it would say here are some statements um, which are true false or cannot say based upon the information in the passage so it, it takes your ability to look at the various sentences and see if it logically flows that a statement is true or it's an impossibility in which case it's false or there isn't enough information to tell in which case it's cannot say so it's 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 a test of people's reasoning skills but within a verbal context yeah. okay um numerical would be similar but it would have charts either one chart two charts maybe three charts bar, pie, um, uh, histogram, etc. And you would be asked certain questions like, um, what um, 
in what year was the population growth for bottlenose dolphins at its <laughs> most at its peak? And you'd have the yeah. last ten years worth of bottlenose dolphins. Everyone knows that. Not in 1987, of course. Yeah. So we couldn't use that one. But um, but that again looks at your reasoning skills, but in a numerical context. So it's not necessarily a test of your maths. It's a, it's a test of your ability to apply logical thinking when you're looking at numerical data. Yeah, and using um, a combination of these. Obviously, you're testing different things in a similar, right. similar way. And, and the research shows that um, they are separate. So you're not simply measuring the same thing twice. They, they are adding value if you had a verbal and a numerical test. Uh, in graduate recruitment, often there's a third um, test type, which would be abstract reasoning or logical reasoning. And that's where you have, let's say, a series of shapes, and it says which one comes next in the sequence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. That, those are quite nice because they're obviously language independent. Uh, you don't, it, you're not advantaged if English is your first language. Um, and they're a pure test of your logical reasoning skills. Sometimes um, they're used to skim off the cream of the cream. Once you've done a first round with verbal and numerical and then logical might get off a, a, a further 20% or okay. so off the top. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that to save money? It, um, yes, that, that is one of the advantages of having a staged approach to sifting. So you could have verbal first, then numerical, then abstract. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that, that, that is more cost effective. Some firms prefer to give all three of them up front because then they can look at the pattern across the three and say, well, actually, they could compensate for a slightly lower numerical reasoning score by barnstorming verbal and abstract reasoning scores. So um, right. we'll let them through. Uh, and you can combine scores and weight certain tests as being more important than others in that calculation if you want to. So would you recommend that people um, did all three or went through this stage process? I, with my practical hat on, I would say the staged process is, um, if all three of them have been proven to be relevant to the job through job analysis, um, then a staged process is quite cost effective. Um, but. Um, but yeah, you, you can do it the other way, and that gives you a richer picture if you wish. But if cost is your primary concern, then staged. Hmm. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. Have you explored all the psychological tests? So no, so those, those are tests of maximum performance. So yeah. the, the more you do, the better. better. You do, right. Yeah, the second type would be tests of typical performance so how do you typically tend to act at work hmm. um, these have got no objective right or wrong and they, so they tend to be things like personality questionnaires yeah. motivation questionnaires values questionnaires um, strengths questionnaires and what an organization would have done is through the job analysis they would say well uh, these personality um, traits tend to be important for those who go on to be successful in the job so let's look for those in applicants but um, there's nothing wrong with being an extrovert or an introvert, but for certain jobs, um, being one side or the other tends to be a better fit. So, so if you're a salesperson, probably being extroverted probably helps. Well, it's really interesting, actually, because okay. um, uh, it depends go. on what type of salesperson, yeah, because okay. your natural inclination might be to think that. Mm. But then if you look at someone who's maybe traveling up and down the motorway um, in their Ford Probe with their ties swinging off there at the back, the traveling salesperson, <laughs> eating on their own in the moto services um, actually being an extrovert could be quite frustrating for them because right. they crave people interaction and, and it's six hours a day in, yeah, the, in yeah, the car okay. um, yeah, or um, I did a bit of work with an oil and gas company and um, it was uh, these massive great um, oil tankers and it's only got a crew of about 20 people mm. so my natural reaction was well to do well in these environments probably you have to be a bit of an introvert um, yeah. I, like you don't need to have people around you all the time but actually, when we did the job analysis, we found the opposite was true again, is that actually um, being an extrovert tends to be those people that stay the longest because they reach out, have a support network. If they have um, issues going on or trouble back home, then they can talk to people about it and, and have a, 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 a way of venting um, in a way that an introvert that maybe kind of shuts themselves away in the room doesn't have. So um, I think it's important to test out these hypotheses through job analysis to see is it is it true or not okay, okay. maybe we can come to job analysis a little bit later mm. in terms of how you might approach that mm. yes that's good i mean yeah. you, you talk to them as like uh typical and i guess yeah. it's because the types in different businesses are looking for different uh, people in different roles so therefore you can interpret the type based on the data you get back is that yes i mean the word type is quite a loaded one in okay. the measurement of personality because um there are two schools of thought, and, and you might have seen this on LinkedIn when, when, when psychology geeks 
get enraged with one another about the split between type and trait when measuring personality. Okay. So <laughs> I've um, missed that one. Uh, yeah, well, there's, there's only certain rarefied circles that you get to see that in, but it's... Um, so you might be familiar with something like the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, yeah, yeah. that will give you four letters that, that, that essentially tend to say, well, this is your type. Um, here's a whole load of traits that are associated with people who are like you. Um, the trait-based approach says t tends to be more granular. So you maybe have 30, 20 to 30 different traits and say, well, we're all somewhere on this spectrum. Um, for you, let's pinpoint where you are. So in a mm -hmm. selection context, um, the trait-based approach tends to be favoured because you can look at a, look at these 20 scales and you can say, right, let's pick three of them that are relevant for our competency of teamwork, how we define teamwork here. Let's pick another three that are relevant for problem solving here. And you can get quite kind of um, uh, tailored in your, in your approach. Okay. Um, whereas type is great for more team building um, type activities or, or, and, some, and in development context as well, it can be really useful. Just have something that people can hold on to and and remember whereas you can't remember where you fall on 20 different traits in a development yeah. context okay. yeah um so that's um that's typical uh, the other thing that's often missed out from assessments is is motivation so why do we do what we do what gets us out of bed in the morning is it money is it promotion is it affiliation just being around others is it um mm -hmm. career prospects um so there are questionnaires that will do that, or you can weave it into the interview. And I think this is where um, strengths-based assessment has really taken off because it does look at what you like doing as well as what you're good at doing yeah. at the same time. And um, whilst we've always done that in, in, in proper assessment processes, this is a nice bundling of the, of the approach. And, it's, and of course, it's got more to it than that because it's also about finding what gives us joy and makes us feel in the flow um at work as well so but yes that that's where it's kind of come from yeah it seems so the isc seem to have four categories right that businesses um seem to put their assessments into so either competent competency based strengths based value based or they're looking for particular technical skills um and the the, the largest of those is um competency based with about three quarters of companies doing that yeah um why don't people use a mixture? Or, yeah. Like, why? Why do they? Why do you think they identify as one or the other? Like, one's better than the other. Why do you think that is? Well, or are what is one better than the other? I so up until fairly recently, competencies would have been much closer to one hundred percent. I think particularly for graduate recruitment, competency-based assessment has sometimes been misapplied. So, typically in a competency-based interview, it's tell me about a time when you have X. Um, graduates often don't have experience of X and especially when you start taking into account social mobility considerations some people that went to the very posh private school might have had lots of opportunity to lead a team to develop an enterprise etc whereas other people might not have had that opportunity mm -hmm. so um, so that's when people have turned to other assessment methods like strengths which takes a different approach and it allows it for a more I guess a free-flowing discussion and um, talks a little bit about what what gets people motivated and what they tend to talk about tends to be what they like doing what they like doing tends to be what they're good at so it's 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 a, a less regimented approach strengths-based okay. assessment now it Seems is that, that yeah. one the second one there the um uh the strengths-based one seems to be much more popular when i speak to employers who are taking on apprentices ah because yes. and i think it's this what you're saying is they've got uh, they don't necessarily have these skills or competencies that they uh, might be able to test, so they, they think it's easier to test these. Yeah, I think you're yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I've noticed that as well with, with, with apprentices. Um, and yeah, and that's often where, a, a little bit like other new developments in assessment, like game-based assessment, a lot mm. of employers tend to be more willing to experiment with apprentices and say, well, look, let's try out something a little bit new, a little bit different. The graduate recruitment, they tend to then maybe do that later and they say, well, let's let's kind of test it out first, see how it goes, and then we'll okay. move it into the graduate recruitment process. Um, so I've seen a lot of innovation in the area of apprentice recruitment. Um, I mean, I think the it is possible to write a competency-based interview or assessment that doesn't rely upon people kind of spieling out lots of past examples, but, um, but it's not always done that like that. So I think a strengths-based approach, um, it is a different philosophy to assessing people um, and and it does require a, I guess a degree of flexibility on the 
behalf of the employer because it's 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 more like as long as people get to the same outcome in their job um so let's say as long as you can meet the deadline for the project that you're assigned how you choose to use your strengths to get there is kind of down to the individuals so so an apprentice who's really good at planning and organizing that might be a strength of theirs they enjoy it that's how they get to the deadline a different apprentice might say well actually i'm really good at influencing people and people find me quite kind of uh, inspiring and, and and actually i can get other people to work towards the deadline on my behalf so it's a little bit more about what do you bring to the party yeah. and and as, and how do you achieve those results um, okay yeah. I, I, where, i've got a question where do the um so where do the numerical reasoning and verbal reasoning fit into this are they competency based a competency because they they seem like because you don't need any prior knowledge no so where do they fit so they are they are uh, more of a just a pure measure of someone's cognitive reasoning and um sometimes that is subsumed under a competency so you have a competency like analysis and problem solving and you'd say right we'll measure that using the ability tests um so they yeah they're kind of a part of a competency which typically is comprised of people's behavior personality motivation reasoning yeah. and knowledge okay so to sort of summarize uh this the landscape yeah. effectively um we've talked through i guess a range of different ways that you can uh assess and select candidates um i think if you come back to the is ISE data which we always do you can see that about three quarters um view their process as competency based and about half view it as strengths based now i think you've obviously got a varying level of different processes and um, involvements which is why i think companies will use bits of both and try and include as much as they can um, and one thing we've touched on at the end there was more values based which is something that's fairly new it's actually being used by a minority of ic members which was about uh was it 40 percent so mm -hmm. not as many but is that something you're seeing that's become a little bit more uh prevalent in recent times um i i have a um a slight, uh, oh, what's, what's the word, uh, hesitation over the approach to assessing someone's values because okay. um, subjective-wise, or is it? It's, how, is it how, do they, how do they do it? How do they do it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they. I, I think you have to say what are values, um, and I think it's just it's corporate values from an individual's own values, and often I've seen organisations recruiting against corporate values. Right. Now, corporate values are there for a purpose which is often to create profit and to grow, mm -hmm. um, but it's also to create a nice working environment and all that. Now, um, if it's a corporate value, then um, I guess my question is, is it important that someone holds that corporate value running through them like a stick of rock, or is it sufficient that they act in a way that's in alignment with those corporate values? Um, so, um, if if we, one of the so a few of the companies we work with have, have values around working as like a, a team, all togetherness. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. now, um, if that isn't um, absolutely at the heart of my being, um, but I'm a very affable person, I'm, I'm not going to um, offend people. I'm going to ask for support and give support. Um, is that enough, or do I need to prove that it's at my very core as a human being? Right. Um, and that's where. Um, I guess there's a there's a that that's the corporate value side of things. I mean, personal values. If you say, yeah. well, look, let's really drill down into why you do what you do. Um, firstly, that's very hard to unpack. So a lot of people don't know why they do what they do. They haven't mm. got the level of self insight. They might know a little bit enough to answer a personality questionnaire. Well, I tend to prefer working in a group rather than individually. But why why have I gone down this path? Why why what, what's really core to me from an ethical and moral principles perspective? Yeah. Um, and I would say, is that is that relevant to to the job? Um, Which and is why maybe fewer IC members use it. It, it's it a could bit more be more complex. And, and and also, I think there's there are implications from a fairness perspective. So you've got someone who's let's say a single parent who um, the reason why they're going for the job is because they want to earn money to put food on the table and a roof over the head someone else comes along who comes from a very well-off background and they say i'm doing it to change the world i'm doing it because i mm. want to um yeah bring happiness to millions if you choose the latter person because of the why rather than the former is that ethical even if on the surface both of them might behave in a similar way both of them would be good team players both of them would yeah. be quite commercially minded so how relevant is that why at work but 
Good. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Well, that kind of brings us nicely onto actually how how we work, think about different employers. I guess there's obviously a lot of employers listening, thinking, well, how do I look at my assessment and selection and you know, pull it all together? Is there anything I want to think about change? Um, and the employers usually vary quite a lot. You've got some of the largest employers in the UK, you've got some smaller employers and some that recruit into certain locations or certain roles. So I guess we'll probably um, split this into what is going to work really well if you're a volume recruiter and what if you're quite niche. Yeah. So do you want to touch on what's more practical tips as to if you're a volume recruiter, you know, how do you look at assessment selection and uh, yeah, what have you seen works really well for other companies? Yeah. So I think we touched on it a little bit earlier when we talked about front loading the more automated parts of the process. So um, going all the way to the to the application form, um, having in there some gross negative disqualifiers that are going to rule people out immediately. Yeah. Um, so um, or actually even before the application form. So for there was a a bank that I worked for to design um, what's called a situational judgment test for their graduate program mm -hmm. because they said a lot of people had misconceptions about what the program involved. So they were coming along thinking that they would get to travel the world, they'd get to rapid promotion and all this. And they said, actually, it's getting us the kind of the wrong type of people at times and they're leaving. So they actually put that up on their website as a optional um, thing for people to complete. So, so how important is this for you in the job? And uh, here's a typical scenario. Would you enjoy that? Or would you find that frustrating? Yeah. And then it gave them an automated message that said, um, many of your answers are in line with what we're looking for on the graduate program. Please continue. Or some of them are contrary to what we're looking for. Yeah, um, here's a link to the job description and check out that it's really right for you. So pre, I would say... Pre-question. Pre-questions. Yeah. Um, now, it's, it's obviously quite hard to track how many people that deters from applying mm. um, because they're not logging their name because uh, you want them to be honest and in responding. But even if it's kind of 5% of people, then that's, that's saved you a bit of money and, and time in later stages. So then, um, yes, I, I would say the ability tests um, are proven to be the single best predictor of job performance from the arsenal of psychological assessments you could use. So there's there's some meta... meta <laughs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> Meta-analysis. Meta-analysis, yeah. Yeah, um, which is essentially a... A, a, a best of it's a greatest hits of psychological <laughs> research into how well psychological assessments predict future performance so right, okay. um, there's um, um, yeah Smith and Robertson um, for example to take to take um, just a, a pair um, who who ranked these different assessment methods and how well they predict performance now on a scale from zero to one ability tests come out at about 0 0.7 0 0.6 yeah. 0.7 you, you're not going to get much better than that from a single assessment so if reasoning is important put those way up front um, things like a situational judgment test, which again is automatically scored, um, I would probably place after that. They tend to predict performance about 0.4 to 0.6. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So still pretty good. And, and that's something that I've seen a real explosion in amongst volume recruiters because they give a, a preview of what life's going to be like. So you can say, actually, that's, that's not for me. I'm not going to continue my application any further. Right. Or I love this. Um, because the situations are all relevant to the particular employer, they're all real, yes. real examples from that employer. Yes, yeah. and and they're not just designed to showcase the good. So you will have some challenging scenarios. So we work with one organisation where you'd be going into um, quite challenging school environments, and and you would have pupils being rude, being aggressive, and some people would see that as a challenge to be embraced, and other people would mm. say, "I couldn't hack that." And yeah, so so they they would select themselves out. So. So yes, so SJTs I put in there. Um, things like um, video interviews and telephone interviews. So again, I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but um, I know research by the ISE has shown video video interviews to explode. So I do have the exact statistics. Yeah, go on. Um, rifle through the paper. So um, yeah, 59% of, um, no, 47% of ISE members surveyed said they were using video interviews with graduates um, and 24% reporting that this was an effective way to select the right candidate. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> but, um, but essentially... Um, it would be higher, right, if yeah. they were using it. You would. Uh, you would. Also, compared to five years ago, if you look mm. at an ISE survey from 2014, also looked at that, so only 
unemployed right. were using video interviews. Yeah. So it's almost doubled, 21% to 47. So we've gone from one in five companies doing it five years ago. Yeah, almost, yeah. Half, yeah. almost half. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, it's really exploded. And, uh, and I don't think that's because of any extra great psychological insight they offer. I think it's just the, the, the massively more convenient um, way of scheduling in interviews you don't yeah. have to wait for a time that you're both free and have that call you can score it at your leisure you can um, they can log on at a moment at their leisure to record their video interview um, I mean there are some things at the cutting edge of video assessments that are relatively um, under researched at the moment apart mm -hmm. from the companies that are offering them so things like um, a, a, an artificial intelligence um, that will that will score your vocal inflections your facial oh, right, twitches okay. um really? and and they will link that to a, a personality traits and say well look yeah. we can we can predict one from the other now is that, um is that very accurate so um this this is being researched in an academic context yeah. and what um the ai is able to do quite well is to be able to spot human emotions and label them so if i scowl then it can recognize oh that's a scowl he's pushing his eyebrows down yeah. and pouting his lips yeah. um i think um, i was reading an article this morning that was about um it was saying well no one ever won an academy award for scowling what to denote anger or frustration um in a, in a, in a film or whatever saying that actually human emotions are more complex than that so if you're in a video interview and you're feeling nervous are you likely to sit there kind of like biting on your fingernails and hold, hold, pulling on your bottom lip, which might be classic signs of nerves, or would it be more um, going on underneath the surface and, and, and you'd be ruminating upon it internally? Or, and would it be different for different people? So I would say that, that in certain cases, mm. you can spot these personality traits. Um, and this is where big data comes in. You feed enough data into an algorithm from people's micro expressions and enough data in from their job performance and you're going to find some links yeah, there. Yeah, there'll be a trend somewhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> as, as to whether you can actually put a label on it and say that's what we're measuring here with a that, that has not yet been proven. Yeah, so it's um, more, that's more the, what the future might look like, yes, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, so, um, so video interviews um, and then you're through to the, to, to the assessment centre stage and, and I guess the main trends that I've noticed there amongst volume recruiters is the desire for shorter and shorter events. So when I began um, work in 2000, sometimes there were two day events, there'd be like a gala dinner with champagne the night before and uh, and, it, and there would be um, plenty of opportunities to network and to trigger your unconscious bias over dinner as to how right, someone okay. held their uh, cutlery and things. Um, <laughs> then um, it, it got much shorter, it said, let's just do it in a day and now, a lot of our clients are asked for it in half a day and actually within that half a day we need to set aside an hour or so for current graduates to talk about the current uh, program so it's yeah. a it's a challenge to try to come up with it with assessments that are still valid and are going to give you enough insight but going to be short enough to squeeze into like three hours or so um, yeah. this so. is what pressure from just employers because they're feeling the pressure as well in terms of yeah. their time and resource they can dedicate to this yeah in a the world we're in these days i guess that's right that's right and 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 it's the, and i guess this highlights the importance of monitoring your assessment process so those that have gone to the half day assessment center um set up what i'd be encouraging them to do is to then do a validity study a mm. year down the line and yeah. say well did those people tend to do well did, yeah. they, they, did you make the right um, decisions and and versus before yeah. because if you find that it's just as predictive as a one-day center then um, great. Um, if you find that it, you're losing it, then you might say, well, maybe we should go back to a full day. But in order to make that cost effective, maybe we need to ramp up the number of online stages to get those numbers down so we don't have to pay more on hotels and take out more assessors time and all that. So yeah. it's a continual process of tweaking and refining and experimenting and, until you get the, yeah, the optimum process. Do you think that aftercare piece is um, really embraced by lots of employers? So it seems to be that employers seem to um, focus quite a lot on maybe new tests or different ways mm -hmm. they can do stuff. And then um, when, when I speak to employers, they um, not that many seem to have that much evidence of whether this change actually ultimately has led to better job performance five years down the line. Yeah. I think that's a yeah, really good point. I'd say it varies, but in the most part, it's done poorly. Um, what would be a good way to do that? So um, Maybe people just don't know the, uh, an easy, simple do. way to yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, 
if you work with a company like Sten 10, then, um, <laughs> then we'd integrate that into the offer. We'd say, well, look, um, we'd quite like a case study out of this. And uh, let's, let's talk about um, what you can do to measure job performance a year or two years down the line versus these test results. But I think that the perennial problem is how do you measure job performance? Um, so for some organizations, um, they would use managers ratings, um, a one to five, how are they performing yeah. on these competencies? But you tend to get either a regression towards the mean, so oh, let's give a three, let's give a three, let's give a three. And you don't get much of a, an, a, an opportunity to, to, to look at a spread of scores versus the test. Um, or they'll tend to go on the soft side and give them all fours and fives. Yeah. So, so that's they tough. Just do a bigger scale. Zero yeah, to 100. Zero to 100, yeah. Maybe we could do that. Um, and, or you can do things like promotion rates. So, so you say, well, we want graduates going to be the leaders of tomorrow. We want them to be promoted within, within three years. So that's, that's a hard measure. But again, you'd have to be confident that those promotions are solely happening on the basis of objective criteria, not their networking skills or, 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 or chance projects that they happen to have got that... that Boost okay. them up. So it's hard, it's hard to measure down the line. Yeah, so it maybe is. that's why they don't do so, it. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, But there's no simple way for someone to do that. Or you could, so you can go, oh, you know. Retention? Yeah, reten retention is great. Can't, can't, you take, like, can't you take like five factors? Like yeah. um, how much their salaries increased, uh, how long they've stayed in the business, how many promotions they've had, and what their managers think. That's great, yeah. And, yes. and a multi-method approach, I think, is is really good idea too. Yeah, so it, it's, it doesn't have to be rocket science. Um, psychologists for a long time tried to sell in the idea of um, the utility equation which um, those of you that are interested can, can google but it's it's a horrendously complicated equation doesn't really bear much relation to to real world pragmatic outcomes um, but it was all it was all trying to estimate how much money you would save by booking our, our services um, so we've, we've we've tended to move away from the utility equation as, as a profession now okay. and more towards tangible outcomes like promotion rate retention rate um, customer satisfaction ratings that kind of thing yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, it's great for employees to think about if you're not seeing that as something that happens a lot or enough yeah then i think there's some great tips to yeah. i guess even just start with something simple you know mm. just to get some data to see what's working yeah. for you yeah yeah have you, um, have you got obviously you touched on a few examples there have you got any other really good examples you've seen of almost best practice for volume recruiters doing assessment and selection well um I've got an example where an employer went a certain way down the path of embracing a new technology and then veered away from it, um, okay. which I think was, um, um, yeah, I won't, won't mention any names, but um, it, was a, it was an organization working in the financial sector and they were interested in um, a certain game-based assessment yeah. and, and, it, and it looked fantastic. It projected the right fun kind of culture um, and it seemed to measure the appropriate traits they were looking for. Um, so they did a they did a trial, and they correlated people's scores on the game-based assessment with performance at the assessment centre, and they found um, on the positive side that a lot of those traits at the assessment centre were being predicted. So it was a, it was a tick. However, for other scales, they found that there was no relationship. So that was a bit of a question mark. And then for one scale in particular, they found that innovation, as measured by the game-based assessment, was negatively correlated with how people scored on innovation at the assessment centre. So the better you did at the game, the worse you did at the assessment centre. Right. Um, so that was really confusing. And they were saying, well, mm. are, we, are we measuring innovation correctly? Or, or is, is the game-based assessment defining it differently to us? Um, and in the end, um, that caused them so much concern that they said, look, maybe that's not, we're not quite ready for that yet. We don't know why this result is, so let's stick with more traditional assessments. Um, mm. I mean, I think on, on the flip side, um, there is a growing body of evidence that game-based assessments do predict performance and, yeah. and, and there's some really good players in the market that are looking to build tests that, that are developed to British Psychological Society standards of rigour so they can stand on their own next to a verbal, numerical or abstract reasoning test. But you need to ask for that if you're thinking of going down that route. So what should um, you check? It, that it's so what you're looking for is, um, what, so you want to ask, how, did, how was the test developed? So what are you aiming to assess? And what you're looking for in an answer is um, that it was trialed on large numbers of people. Um, there's some kind of model behind what they're trying to assess. Um, so we're trying to assess the big five factor of personality or whatever it might be. Um, you want to know about validity most strongly of all. So where have you shown that people scores on this test, this game, predict performance in the job? And um, 
And this is something I've noticed change over the years as well, that game-based assessments have been around. At first, um, they tried to more mirror the traditional psychometrics. So it's worked at organization X, so it'll probably work for you too. And with something like a verbal reasoning test, that's often the case. Yeah. I think what they found with game-based assessments is that um, because there are these often like 10,000 plus data points they're measuring, what worked far better was to say, let's do a validity study for you before we even start using the game-based assessment and find out which of these 10,000 data points tends to predict the better performers. So that tends to be the approach that game-based assessments provide now. So you might ask for validity data, but really you should probably do a local study within your own organization before you start sifting out large percentages using it. But that, would, that adds a cost though, right? Um, so the, the, I mean, the, the, there's different commercial models, but it, is, uh, it, it definitely adds a, a time and resource um, cost because you need to get high performers to complete it and medium performers and lower performers um, and to come up with a model to say this is the, the recipe for success. Um, and yeah, and the cost, um, sometimes it'd be a separate charge, sometimes it'd be just subsumed within your uh, setup fee. Um, yeah. Worth checking though. Worth checking, definitely, yeah. So let's talk about the assessment center stage. What innovations are you seeing there? Yeah, so I guess this could be split into a number of different categories. Some of them are technology innovations. So um, the use of virtual reality headsets um, to play yeah. games, um, where, again, I think um, the criteria for whether that's been a success or not are often different to what we're used to measuring as business psychologists. So mm -hmm. I saw a presentation where its, its success was measured via its social media reach. So how much were people okay. talking about it? How much oh, do people right. like the LinkedIn update? Or yeah, yeah. Uh, did they share it on Facebook or in the student room? How much are they talking about it yeah. to try and entice more people in? Um, Which would make sense in the attraction phase. Yes. Maybe less so in the assessment. Yeah, yeah. But it, but I guess it's... Um, I suppose it works for the next cycle, potentially. Yes, for the next cycle. And, and maybe if you're in the kind of the, the white hot heat bit of graduate recruitment and you're seeing the buzz around it, you say, actually, yeah if I'm deciding between two equally prestigious financial services firms but the buzz is around this one, yeah. then maybe I'll, that'll tip me over. Um, so so there, there is the use of new technology. Um, I think there is also this, this eternal balance between trying to come up with an assessment center that's fun and coming up with an assessment center that's valid. And um, I've, I've seen a, a variety of different um, formats in use. So. Um, one example that I heard about at an ISE presentation um, last year, um, the Graduate Assessment Centre was set up like a village fair. So you would have stalls right. um, set up around this room that would be, um, like there'd be an antique stall, there'd be a scones and clotted cream <laughs> stall, there'd be a... Various are they, are they actually selling, getting I don't, the I don't know if they're real, I, I'd oh, hope right, so, because okay. <laughs> biting into a plastic scone would be a bit of a disappointment. Oh, right, okay. um, I thought you actually had... Genuine scones there. Well, well, that great. I'd, 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 I don't know. I'd, I'd hope so. But it was. Um, but what they were doing was this was a strengths-based approach to assessment mm. centres. So, the psychologists would be masquerading as um, kind of villagers who are who are behind the stalls, and they would watch to see where the gra graduates gravitated towards. So, did they uh, pick up the antique um, microscope on the antique stand and have a little look through it? And in which case, that might indicate they have the strength of curiosity um, yeah. okay. or, or do they pick up the scone and wolf it down in which case they might have impulse control issues <laughs> or uh, whatever it might be um, so I, I guess that again is, is, is quite engaging for candidates they'll certainly remember it um, I guess there, there is less research as to whether that's going to predict who's going to be your leaders of tomorrow or, or their rate of promotion or things like that because it's, yeah. it's a relatively new way of assessing people I think um, I had a recent um, scenario with um, uh, with an uh, an oil and gas company who who had a, a way of assessing for their cadets, um, so people at kind of apprentice type type level, mm -hmm. and they had this game that was um, really went down well with the candidates and the assessors, where they had to um, build a, a boat out of paper and they had to float it on a um, little uh, bowl, and uh, there was various things they had to bear in bear in mind when they were building the boat. There was this persistent nagging concern, though, is that does this link to on-the-job um, behaviour? Yeah. And are we missing an opportunity to tell them a little bit more about what the job involves? So 
what we did as an, as an alternative was we said, well, let's, let's try and keep the fun element. So, um, and this is fun in inverted commas, of course, um, but, um, but we produced a map um, of a series of ports uh, around, a, uh, around a harbor mm -hmm. um, or a number of harbors, and they needed to um, track the best route for a boat to visit the harbors in the most cost efficient, um, quick and safe manner. And we had certain um, interruptions, like all of a sudden there's some, I don't know, some guy on a jet ski kind of heading towards you, and yeah. uh, like, w when do you move course? Or, or there's a pod of dolphins um, suddenly being <laughs> spotted off the Nicest harbour bow. Nice coming yeah. through, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and see how they react. So I think there's a bit more of an onus on business psychologists to try and make the assessments engaging, yeah. as well as just something that's very thorough and very okay. rigorous. I was talking to um, Sam, um, from Shoesmiths at the Early yep. Careers Conference uh, recently, and uh, we were talking about assessment selection. And she um, she spoke about it in the documentary, where she was talking about well, you don't have to necessarily go as far as um, totally changing the way that you do assessments in it, but you can make some simple changes to make the process maybe slightly easier, which is just to make people feel more comfortable. So. Um, one of the things as an assessment centre, you feel pretty nervous, right? Because yeah. you, you, I've got to get through this in order to get the job that I want. Mm. And I, I'm not exactly sure what they want from me, but I know they're assessing me in some way. It's called an assessment centre. Yeah. <laughs> and so you feel automatically nervous. You've probably got high levels of cortisol, you've whatever, and you're feeling stressed and that type of stuff. And so her idea was just try and make the whole environment just seem more friendly. So just really simple stuff. They put balloons up and they put out cakes and and it may just try to change the atmosphere of what yeah. it was and so maybe some of these things that it could be that you need to um totally change the way that you're doing something but you could also probably make some fairly simple small changes that might help you um work out what people might really be like because you get rid of the nerves and mm. most of the time they're not going to be super anxious on their their highest most alert state they're going to be in a normal state and you yes. can probably get to see that a bit better that's really really pertinent and there's uh I'll go geeky again for a moment, but there's there's a psychological phenomenon known as stereotype threat, which is where um, something in your environment primes a negative stereotype about yourself. So yeah. if we, um, let's say, for example, a well-meaning employer might say, let's hold the assessment centres at Canary Wharf and really wow them. So you're going up those escalators, never been to Canary Wharf before. Mm -hmm. You're suddenly struck by all these people power walking in pinstripe suits. Um, the ticker tape going around and swigging Peroni, um, and uh, and and you're like, wow, this is this me? Is this is this how yeah. I fit in? Especially people from different, I guess, demographic groups. So, yeah. um, and and then you come up and they say, oh, let's really impress them. Um, there was a construction company um, who I I heard found that they had a very low offer acceptance rate after their assessment centres. Um, and they were thinking, why is this? Like, we're getting some good people through to the assessment centre stage, mm. but they're not accepting our, our, our offers as high as we would hope. And one of the hypotheses was, well, we come along to these assessment centres as assessors, all dressed up, suited and booted to look smart and to show that we respect them and their time. Mm -hmm. But maybe that puts them off because they were saying things like, oh, it doesn't seem like the kind of place I'd want to work. Or, yeah. So they said, right, casual it up. Everyone come in in, in jeans and, uh, and, and shirts. And, um, and they found the offer acceptance rate went up. So sometimes right. it's not rocket science to get a better outcome at the assessment center stage yeah. and to avoid priming those negative perceptions that can hinder people's performance or just make them less likely to say yes yeah yeah really interesting yeah so that's probably relevant for i guess both your volume recruiters which we've been touching on in terms of those that offer let's say lots of roles across multiple locations um uh compared to say the more niche you know, employers so what, what would you say are the, the intricacies with the more niche employers that maybe only take on a certain amount of uh, young people in a certain location or across certain schemes yeah how would they approach assessment differently and what tips do you have for them yeah so I, I guess in those contexts if you're recruiting a very from a very limited pool then there's less of a need to start sifting out um, yeah. kind, of, kind of more brutally so I would um, I would probably still have something in an early stage to say Look, let's just rule out those that are blatantly not not suited so that might be an SJT it might be a um, actually an SJT to be most effective I would recommend a bespoke one rather than one off the shelf so you can get them off the shelf mm -hmm. but it doesn't serve its purpose of giving you an insight into the job so I'd probably say for niche recruitment maybe you wouldn't use an SJT because the time and money involved in a bespoke tool might not be worth it so right. so instead um, 
an application form, maybe with some qualitative responses to some questions, a bit of reflection, and then quickly moving through to the face-to-face -face stage would be best. Um, I would say often um, firms who are recruiting for more niche roles want to assess technical knowledge as well, but I would advise keeping an assessment of people's technical knowledge separate from their behaviour or their personality assessment, um, because otherwise one, one contaminates the other. So yeah. you might say to someone who's applying for an IT um, job, here's a particular case study, um, please produce some JavaScript um, to, that, that will resolve this problem in this database, um, yeah. revealing my lack of knowledge about IT. <laughs> um, and, but if you also try to assess their planning and organizing skills as part of that and their resilience, that could be confounded by uh, a, a knowledge gap in Java. So I'd say keep that separate, assess behavior independently. And you've probably got more of a luxury to spend time on selecting people into the perfect job rather than loading it onto selecting inappropriate people out. So um, I'd invest more in the later stages. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, what's the future on? like? Yeah. Where are we heading? What's, what, are the, what are the trends at the moment? What, what are we gonna yeah. see in the next few years? So I, I gave a little presentation on this um, a couple of weeks back about um, the, the difference between these, these more traditional methods, so the psychometric assessments, the, the assessment centres, and really new cutting-edge assessment methods. And I guess it's, it's a case for all recruiters of sifting through what's emperor's new clothes, what's just going to be a flash in the pan, and what's, what's here to stay. Um, there are, um, I mentioned earlier about things like, like voice um, analysis either based upon your tone of voice um, or the content of what you say that can then be scored using something called natural language processing um, okay. in order to get a profile of you there's um, an interesting plugin you can get for Google Chrome um, from a firm called Crystal Nose and um, with it as you're navigating LinkedIn you click on this button and it comes out with someone's disk profile, so their personality okay. profile, um, based upon information that's on their LinkedIn profile, but also that which is in the public domain. So there's certain things, for example, in Gmail, that if you haven't ticked it, um, other companies can purchase that data and use it to analyse um, your personality based upon the types of words you use or how long mm. your sentences are. Um, What's the name of that tool again? It's called Crystal Nose. Yeah. Um, as in nose with a K rather like than Like bottle nose, dolphin nose. Not oh, like that. there we go. No, no. Oh, not, <laughs> yeah. like that. not like that. The opposite yeah. of that one. So but very good, oh, very okay. good. Um, and, um, and whilst that was originally developed as a sales tool, so approach everyone on LinkedIn, it'll give you tips on how to write the perfect introductory email to get them to speak to you about the new job or the new product. Um, they've now developed a sifting um, tool or a selection tool. Now... The, the, the psychology behind it is really interesting because you say, well, you can actually get a personality profile based upon no input at all from the candidate, mm. which eliminates all these like, 40 minutes for a personality questionnaire. They'll never do that. Well, they don't need to do anything with this. However, there are a whole host of potential concerns as well. So um, how about legislative requirements, GDPR, access to data, if that changed in the future, that could be quite problematic. Also, people will differ as to how much information is in the public domain about them, so that some people's LinkedIn profiles are very full, some are very short. And then, in that instance, you've, you're not comparing like with like. You've got a really good picture of some people and a far less adequate picture of other people, and you're using it to then make a selection decision. So yeah. um, I would advise on keeping your finger on the pulse of these kind of developments, but, but be wary of diving in with both feet until you've done some validity and, and, and check that it's worked. And, and, being aware of these potential risks. I think um, the, the greater focus on health and wellness at work mm. might well come into um, assessment centre practice. So there are some trailblazers in this regard that try to give people something back as a result of the assessment centre. So a few years back, um, one of the banks said, let's send people out in advance of the assessment centre, the GROW model of coaching, and okay. ask them to learn it, and then come yeah. in, and in a role play, they'll practice it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, 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 the nice bit about that is that it could measure people's ability to learn and to apply that learning quite quickly but also even those people that got rejected went away with something and they felt actually I've learned kind of a new skill um, like yeah. or the first stage of a new skill because feedback's also one of the most important things for students yeah in fact they don't get feedback it really annoys them and when they do get it they really appreciate it yeah exactly exactly and um, 
And so finding ways to give something back to people, um, going back to your point, Jack, about, about people's nerves, finding ways of managing that, mm. that I think is far more front of mind now than it ever has been. And, and, and greater onus is placed upon that rather than just getting the most brutally effective scythe with which to, um, to, to, to reduce your candidate pool. So I, I only just really thought about it in the moment now, but I think that's probably is a trend that, mm. um, that we'll see um, more of a focus on caring for the candidate and making it a positive developmental experience as well as just something that's done to them. Yeah. Um, well, Ben, thank you very much. Brings to the end of Series 3, right? It does, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well done, guys. Um, thanks yeah. very much for coming on. Um, thanks for all... Yeah, we've taken a few segues into dolphins as well. Which <laughs> <I think. laughs> that's that's how we get money. I don't know how we've done that. Um, we have a little quiz at the end. Uh, which is the largest species of dolphin? Oh, between you uh, oh come on. It's going to be a trick, isn't it? Oh, is it it's like a confuse you? I think. Is it like the sperm whale or something like that? Yeah, something weird. Like close. Oh, uh, humpback, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, blue. Um, <laughs> I, what other whales are there? Uh, Porpoise, a narwhal. <laughs> really good knowledge of aquatic mammals. Uh, the orca ah, is the largest damn dolphin. It. Yeah, but it's called an orca whale or killer whale. Yeah. But actually, it's a, no, it's a false whale. It's a dolphin. There's also something called a false. A uh, false killer orca. whale, which is also a dolphin, which is going to confuse you. Right. Double negative. Um, there you go. Yeah. Confusing. Oh, well, thank you. Anyway, that suddenly know, yeah. <laughs> brings to an end a podcast around the psych- podcast. Psychological Pod of dolphins. Oh, 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 <laughs> this brilliant. guy. Uh, anyway, on that note, we should probably leave uh, the listeners to yeah. doing what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy whatever you're doing, uh, <laughs> wherever you are. And uh, I've been Jack. Uh, and I've been Ollie. And we'll see you in Series 4. And that is the Early Careers Podcast. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Don't me, I meant to be faithful.